This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. Today, the Lesbian Historic Motif Project is delighted to host Elizabeth Baer. Elizabeth is a prolific writer of both fantasy and science fiction, and particularly known for historically inspired fantasies, such as the Silk Road Eternal Sky series, the New Amsterdam series, which is alternate history with sorcery. Too many more to discuss in detail, but also the two books that particularly inspired me to invite her on the show, Karen Memory, and its sequel that has just been released, Stone Mad which take place in the steampunk Pacific Northwest late 19th century. Back in 2005, she won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Fantasy and Science Fiction Author, and she's won a couple of Hugo Awards for short fiction, plus other honors that would take a while to list through. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, I'm glad to be here. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about Karen Memory and Stone Mad and how you came to write them? (laughs) Well, uh, so the... It's actually one of those funny and convoluted stories because a it turns out that adult but YA friendly steampunk American steampunk novel with a sixteen year old lesbian protagonist was apparently hard to get through to the marketing marketing people. Huh. <laughs> um, it, initially, I I was solicited to write a uh, well not write but uh, submit a proposal for a, a young adult. Uh, novel with a lesbian protagonist and I thought about it for a while and I was talking with a friend of mine about it who and her name happens to be Karen and uh, you know she, she sort of tossed me the softball that made Karen's voice and the first line of the novel pop into my head which is a very which, iconic line it, it's um, you, you ain't gonna like what I've got to tell you but I'm gonna tell you anyway yeah uh, so that's why Karen is named Karen. She's named after my friend. And I wrote the first 15,000 words of the novel. And I wrote a proposal up and sent it in. And it was soundly rejected. Rejected left and right. <laughs> you, you suppose maybe a, a 16-year-old lesbian prostitute was maybe hard to swallow for the YA market? You know, I, the, when I when I when I initially uh, pitched it, when when I had the discussion with the editor who solicited it, um, they thought it was a great idea. <laughs> um, but so I think sometimes the, I, I think people were a little uh, doubtful about Karen's voice, ah. among other things, and because that she's a first person narrator, and her voice is so intrinsic to my ability to write her, I I can't I I don't. I don't write Karen stories and then them like run them through the Enchefferizer to get her voice. Either they they come out in her voice or they don't come out at all. And often what I have to do is go back and edit out pages and pages and pages of digressions, usually about food. Huh. Um, <laughs> she likes her groceries. <laughs> so I was. So this was was back in two thousand and nine, and I took, I think it was the first uh, 7,000 words or so of what I had written and turned it into a short story for a, a steampunk western anthology or weird west anthology that John Joseph Adams put together 
and I wrote the Eternal Sky novels for my tour editor, Beth Meacham. And when I had handed the last one in, she was like, what do you want to do next? And I'm like, I don't really know. What do you, what do you want to see for me? And she said, well, there was that YA pitch. Is there any reason why it has to be a YA? And I'm like, no. I mean, it's going to be a 16-year-old protagonist with a fairly straightforward voice. So she convinced me to try writing it as an adult novel. It's still quite YA-friendly, I think. Um, it's certainly at least a lot of uh, young readers seem to enjoy it. And uh, it, it all kind of just came out of me in a rush. I think possibly because it been, had been, at that point, sitting there in the back of my head stewing for five years. You know, the, it had just, the story had been there growing without being disturbed. So when I actually sat down to write it, I wrote it in, I think, four or five months. And the... I just had a wonderful time writing it. I had a wonderful time with the, the one of the things that I like about the the Karen memory world is that it's a it's a more it's more on the scientific end of steampunk. Uh-huh. There's not there aren't many 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 steampunk novels uh, have things like vampires or sorcerers or yeah. In fact, my my other steampunk or, or gaslit fantasy series has magic and sorcery in it, uh-huh. the, the new Amsterdam books yeah. that you mentioned. And this one doesn't have any magic. It doesn't ha- it has super engineering. Yeah. Um, and it has cryptozoological creatures. So this is a world where like jackalopes are real. Uh-huh. And, and you know, <laughs> like all the creatures that show up in, in tall tales of the wild west are, are real. There are chupacabras out there somewhere sucking on goats. Uh-huh. Um <laughs> And, and setting those constraints for myself meant that I had to think up at least, like, comic book technological explanations for everything, uh-huh. which was a lot of fun. And I, you know, I grew up on Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, the same as everybody else did. Yeah, the, the influences from Verne are, are really obvious in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things I love about um, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is that if you actually read... An un, which is actually kind of hard to get your hands on. Uh, if you if you read a, um, a a complete version of the novel, it's got really strong anti-colonial aspects to it. Uh-huh. Because it, Nemo is a, a British subject from the Indian subcontinent who is fighting against the British overlords. That's, <laughs> he has a motivation. <laughs> yeah. Which which doesn't show up in a lot of the movies and, and the the, um, the edited versions of the book somehow. <laughs> Funny thing. Funny thing. Funny thing how that gets taken out. And anyway. Yeah. So I, I yeah, the, I mean, that aspect is obviously very strong in there. The, the second novel, Stone Mad, it's a very, very short novel. It is just over the legal limit at like 40,000 words. So it's being published through Tor.com's novella program uh-huh. because they have the they have the infrastructure to do it, basically. But it is, it is technically a novel, kind of. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it's interstitial. Mm-hmm. It's... <laughs> And uh, that that one has uh, I, I've decided that, that what I want to do with this series because I do have about three more stories I want to tell in it right now and oh, I'm great. sure I will sure I will think of more is I, I think it would be neat to do 
longer works that are sort of more complicated murder mystery type objects and shorter works that are almost a little I don't, I don't want to say uh, you know that, that are almost sort of self fanfic like well, no I know exactly little, what you mean a fun side story I, I, I have a bunch of those to write for my series where it, it, it really does feel like I'm writing fanfic of my own work. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, but there's nothing wrong with that. Why, why, why do the fans get to write all the fun bits? <laughs> <laughs> I want to I wanna write my, my protagonist and her girlfriend going out to dinner and getting into trouble. You know? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's maybe not a novel plot, but it's certainly a, a very fun side story plot. And, yeah. I guess that's it. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm delighted to be writing these. My intention with them is that each one is going to be a story that can be read all by itself. And I want them to be... My, my friend Sarah Monette, who also writes as Catherine Addison, who wrote The Goblin Emperor, uh, is her, her most well-known work, uh-huh. makes a distinction between Claire and noir as modes of storytelling. And noir is you know, what we might term grimdark these mm-hmm. days, but just where the, where the underlying presentiment of how the world works is cynical and, and brutal and nothing will ever turn out right and you'll never be happy. And that's not the world I want to write when I'm writing about Karen. Mm-hmm. I want to put her in an, she's an optimistic person and I want to put her in an optimistic world, not where bad things never happen and people never get hurt because obviously they do. But, but where there's a hope that things will come out well. There's a hope that things will come out well and people can recover from trauma, you know, within reasonable limits, obviously, if somebody drops a house on you. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, so finding that, finding that balance of gee whiz action adventure and a little bit of romance and a little bit of fun and also making it a serious story about a serious character who in who experiences character growth but it doesn't have to be that kind of and then i had a huge epiphany and realized why i had been goofing up my life <laughs> because she she hasn't really she's had yeah. a rough life but she's a very capable person mm-hmm. and that's that's fun to write so the, the setting in the sort of, it, it's a Pacific Northwest, clearly, but not a specific place, although I, I got kind of a mixed Portland-Seattle vibe out of it. I was, I was going for, for sort of mixed San Francisco-Seattle. I've never uh-huh. actually been to Portland. I'm sorry, I keep trying to go and it doesn't work yeah. out. But I'm am coming, I re- Portland, I'm coming. <laughs> am I remembering correctly that you were living in Seattle at one point? No. No, I I, uh, I visited it several times in quick succession, and I've I've taught Clarion West a couple of times. Okay, um, that must be what I'm remembering. Yes, Sher- Sherry Priest was living in Seattle, and I was I, I went out and bothered her once. <laughs> um, but so, what was the attraction of that particular setting? It's I mean, it's physically beautiful for one thing, and it allowed me. The history of the the northwestern U.S. is fascinating and complicated, and gets extensively sort of. I I mean, like like most of the history of the American West, it does have a real tendency to get whitewashed. Yeah, and normed, mm-hmm. and really that part of the world during that time was where 
all the dregs washed up. Mm. And as I proudly identify myself as a dreg, <laughs> um, <laughs> by middle American standards anyway, or by, you know, I should say by 19th century middle American yeah. standards, it, it allowed me to talk about a lot of people that history generally overlooks and ignores and erases and Seattle literally was actually Seattle and San Francisco both in a lot of ways literally were built on the backs of prostitution mm-hmm. that the 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 working girls the the you know parlor girls were taxed $50 a week that's a lot of money in 1860 uh-huh. yeah <laughs> um, which tells you you know how well they were doing at mm-hmm. least the ones on the upper end of the trade but that I, that was that was the tax base. Uh-huh. So, and, and one of the things I love about Seattle is that they just admit this. Mm-hmm. There, there was a woman of, of whom there is a, a fictionalized, I, 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 I did not use the real Mother Damnable in Karen Memory. However, there is a character called Madame Damnable who is heavily inspired by the real Mother Damnable, who was one of Seattle's founding mothers, and uh, as it were, and, and was in fact at one point running a whorehouse out of the upstairs of her two floor house and town hall out of the first floor. <laughs> um, literally. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, having, having been given that, that sort of coincidence of that coincidence of history and of frequently, I, I'm trying to think of the word I want here of, of frequently marginalized people who nevertheless had a huge impact on society that was what I wanted to talk about. Yeah, and and that actually leads into one of the questions I had prepared, which you've already answered part of. But uh, what I had come up with is that one of the things I loved in Karen Memory was how you wove in people and situations that are solidly part of history, but weaving them in in ways that people might mistake for fictional elements. And I'm thinking of things like the character of Bass Reeves and the, (laughs) the significant ethnic diversity without glossing over any of the racism, the diversity of gender and sexuality in a context where readers might find that surprising, and the utterly bonkers politics. So were those <laughs> things that, that were part of the inspiration for the story in the first place, or were they things that you turned up while researching? Well, uh, Bass Reeves is the only real historical character uh, in the book. Uh-huh. Who is, who is there as himself and not as a, this person inspired me to create a fictional character who is in some way, you know, their descent, structural descendant, I guess. But Bass Reeves was a real dude. Um, he was a U.S. Marshal who was an escaped slave who worked in the Indian Territory, what is now Oklahoma. I have him somewhat off his patch mm-hmm. uh, for, the, for the purposes of this story. He was uh, obviously a black man, and he is, I believe he still holds the record for the most warrants served and fugitives returned. Uh And that's more than 100 years later. Uh This guy was a badass, (laughs) not to put too fine a point on it. He also had like 23 kids. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> when did he find the time? Yeah. Right? He um, he is probably the inspiration for the Lone Ranger. Uh-huh. So uh, when I, and I had wanted to 
make more people aware of this guy's existence. And so I had the opportunity in this story, since I have a serial killer running around Seattle, why not bring, you know, why not bring the Lone Ranger in to solve the mystery? Sure. Make it the real Lone Ranger. Yeah. And, and then, of course, he had to have, you know, a Comanche posseman. And I wanted to try to do a, a more, more honorable version, more honorable job of presenting a real human being and not just a sidekick a a stereotypical indian sidekick yes exactly so i i wound up doing a lot of research on that and on the you know the state of indian affairs in the 1870s in the u.s which is just depressing and horrible Mm -hmm. um and not a not a story in which you know uh, it's it's a genocide you know i mean Mm -hmm. there's no way to yeah yeah no way to put any finer point on it than that um it's the story of a genocide so there becomes a real challenge in in talking about that stuff and being honest about it but also being honest about the fact that people in terrible conditions still have to live their lives yeah people in terrible conditions are not defined by their victimhood Mm -hmm. or don't have to be you know you don't have to perform Society has a certain number of, of set roles for people who have been traumatized, and, and you are expected to perform one of those roles. And as somebody who has PTSD, um, <laughs> I find that very irritating because I would like to see more representation of a wider range of characters like me. And this makes me assume that other people who are not widely represented in fiction would like to see uh, more representation of a wider range of characters who are like them, who are not the same two stereotypes. Uh-huh. A lot of your fiction is rooted in history, but takes off in new directions. So not only in terms of adding fantastic elements sometimes, but tweaking the direction of history to different pathways. What's the particular appeal to you of that type of story generally? Are historic settings something you've always loved, or did it just sort of arise out of the writing? Well, I'm, I'm a terrible historian, um, and I've, I tried to write one actual historical novel, which is The Stratford Man, which was published in two volumes as Ink and Steel and Hell and Earth. And it was exhausting. It was so much work. <laughs> I had, I, I, I did, did it up. I did the whole Tim Powers thing. I had ty- timelines, and I had calendars with historical events written on them and fictional events written on them. And, yeah, I had to move. I had to move something by one day for reasons of pacing, and I felt terrible about it. And I'm like, I'm just never doing this to myself again. <laughs> so, so that definitely explains the diverging from history part of it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done with being faithful to history. It's too much work. I'm going to leave that to to people who like that sort of thing. I mean, I love reading it. I, I love reading a good secret history. Uh-huh. Um, but wow, so much. And, and the thing is that no matter, nobody agrees about anything. And I, I spent five days trying to research whether Shakespearean actors used stage paint. Mm. And I finally, there's, there's, I could not find any research on this. I finally decided based on stage directions that they must. Uh-huh. There's a line in, in Shakespeare, enter rumor painted in tongues. <laughs> if that's. If that's all he needs to say about it, painted in tongues, then obviously stage makeup is a thing that everybody's familiar with. Uh-huh. And this is not a radical new idea. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but I digress. I also, I also feel like there are 
some of my books that are really very ahistorical, that may be inspired by a time period or, uh, you know, or, or a historical pattern or a cultural pattern. I was trained as an anthropologist, and often what I get my inspiration from is cultural patterns and cultural uh-huh. development rather than actual history. And people will try to force it into a historical mold. My Eternal Sky books are about as ahistorical as any Western fantasy. I, they, they have no more basic in, basis in historical reality uh, of the, the Mongolian steppes and the, the Middle and Far East than, than Game of Thrones does in you know, <laughs> 13th century Ireland uh, and, and, and England. But I guess that, and, that answers my question is that you are you are attracted to cultures and then playing with cultures as opposed to being attracted to historical events and playing with those. Well, try, trying very hard not to appropriate other people's cultures, but but sort of look at the logical structures of how a culture develops and why it why it happens that way uh-huh. and come up with a, a thing that follows a similar logical structure. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that there are a lot of fantasists who do the same thing, but then they'll say, "Oh, I'm writing Celtic fantasy," and I'm like, "Your Celtic fantasy has absolutely nothing to do with real Celtic society." Yeah. <laughs> um, so I well, and a lot of medieval. Like I might as well just just cop to the fact that no, I made this up. Yeah, a lot of um, medieval fantasy is the same. It's like, oh, this is a medieval fantasy, but uh, nothing like anything I've ever studied. Yeah, or or uh, Norse fantasy, which is I've 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 written a, f- a fair amount of Norse inspired fantasy and, uh-huh. and Norse inspired techno fantasy because I am a child of the eighties. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's not. This is this is not a saga. Um, yeah, <laughs> I am I am not I am not telling you a true story about something that happened to people a thousand years ago. I am making a lot of stuff up, and yes, it does have trolls in it. <laughs> Um, I, I did borrow your trolls. <laughs> so I, I'm interested also specifically in how writers develop the presentation of marginalized sexualities in their historic settings. And I mean, the, 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 the name of the podcast kind of, you know, leads yeah. to that point. Is this something where you base the characters on known historical situations or individuals or on general research or just what felt fit right to you? Often I, I do, I mean, I, I grew up in a queer family and I'm queer myself and I have, because of that, I have never lived in a world that didn't have queer people in it. Uh-huh. And so when I was, I actually just wrote a Patreon post about this. Um, when I was a young person reading science fiction, discovering books that actually had queer people in them unremarkably uh diane duane uh in particular uh-huh. um with uh, the 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 door into series i think that was the the first book i ever encountered as a young reader in which i opened it and here's a young prince riding off to rescue his beloved another young prince who is trapped in a tower yeah and i'm like it it, it and it's just treated totally naturally and i'm like this is amazing this is like people i know so that I still remember that visceral sense of not feeling ostracized from the fiction I loved, uh-huh. and and I want to I, I want to give other people that sense of here is a place where you are welcome, obviously. But I also 
feel like we we do have a real tendency to write historical characters as if they were living in the modern world and writing you know i mean the concept of heterosexuality and homosexuality is only about 150 years old uh-huh. if that it, you know the the when i when i'm writing characters in elizabethan england who are same gender attracted or you know attracted to a panoply of genders or whatever it is that's their particular thing they're not thinking about it in terms of well i'm gay or uh-huh. i'm straight or i'm bisexual they're thinking about it in terms of you know this is a homosexual act not i am a homosexual person so the so the the construction of identity is very different mm-hmm. and that is that was a thorny thing to wrestle with while while trying to acknowledge that while not saying anything that could be interpreted interpreted as well homosexuality is not a valid identity because of course it is because sexuality is a social contract construct and so is identity um, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make them not real you know money is a social construct exactly uh, corporations are a social construct but but there's a, a tricky aspect there where you know, heterosexuality was was not a valid historic concept either, and yet exactly. nobody ever questions or challenges that if you're writing heterosexual characters. So, bingo, exactly. You know, and obviously, I believe that there is a spectrum of desire, and people are attracted to whom they are attracted to for various reasons, including gender. But that the the so the construct of that is a real thing versus the identity of well, I'm a heterosexual. Yeah, and and what you uh, what you expect it, to to do with that desire is of course very socially constructed. Exactly, a- absolutely. So yeah, that's that's a real challenge, and and it's also a real challenge to write write characters in the same time frame or or same you know same setting who come from different cultures and have different ideas of what gender and sexuality are. Uh-huh. And that's and and of course many of these are so different from our own constructions, and yet I want to feel welcoming to modern readers who yes. read my books. Yes, exactly. And it's such a it, it's so challenging. It's it's a real tricky balance point. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> man, people are <Yeah>. complicated. <laughs> So as we've said, your new book, Stone Mad, will be out by the time this podcast airs, and people should go pick it up and read it. And if they haven't read Karen Memory before, they should read that too, although you say it, it, they both stand alone. But what other current projects or upcoming projects do you have that our listeners might be interested in? So today I am finishing the final a structural and narrative edit on a book called Ancestral Night that I am super, super, super excited about. It will be out next year, 2019, from Galance in the UK and Saga in the US. It is a big idea, sprawling, old school exploration of space, space opera, whose uh, protagonist is a lesbian salvage tug engineer with terrible taste in women. <laughs> that sounds like our listeners <laughs> will probably oh like God, that so one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's relevant to this podcast. Yes. 
and uh, and after after that, I need to start serious drafting work on uh, a book called The Red Stain Wings, which is the next book in the second Eternal Sky trilogy. Uh-huh. The first book is The Stone in the Skull, which was out last October and just made the Locust recommended reading list. Yay. Um, that one's pretty thoroughly queer too, I mm-hmm. have to say. But it that and that's a um, I I was playing around with the ideas of what sort of societies might have developed in an analog to the the Indus River Valley, uh-huh. um, which is one of the places where uh, agriculture. Uh, first arose agriculture and aqueducts and counting and le- written language possibly and a bunch of other stuff first first arose but we know almost nothing about the people who lived there because time and I was you know because I have this big tapestry in the eternal sky world I wanted to to move there and tell a set of stories about those people and they're having a, a basically a, a little internecine cousin versus cousin the empire has collapsed war over resources because some of them have fertile farmland and some don't mm-hmm. and uh, then catastrophic geologic events start happening which is of course always always makes your border skirmishes better yeah shakes up your, your, your characters <laughs> very nicely yeah yeah <laughs> makes things happen um, so that's that's my next big project that i actually have to write as opposed to editing uh-huh So if one of our listeners wanted to follow you on social media and keep up with what you're doing, what would you suggest? I know you have a Patreon where you sometimes post stories. I I do. Um, I am am Matosikwala everywhere, M-A-T-O-C-I-Q-U-A-L-A. I actually don't currently have a dedicated website because I it needed to be revamped completely and I took it down and then life happened. So elizabethbear.com will currently just take you to my Patreon. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's the easiest way to get there. And uh, I'm Matto Sequala on Twitter, and I'm Matto Sequala on Instagram. Um, I have a very neglected Facebook page, Facebook fan page. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want really, really intermittent updates, there's that. And I also have a, a tiny letter, newsletter, um, mm-hmm. on an erratic basis, which is also Matto Sequala. I know once upon a time you had a live journal, but, uh, you know, I don't know if that got dropped somewhere in the great live journal migration. I, I, it is all still mirrored on Dreamwidth, and there's a lot of uh, how I figured, how I learned how to write back there, which might be a useful resource, but I have not. I, I started that blog because, actually it was Neil Gaiman's fault, although he doesn't know this. He, he wrote a post about why, on his blog, about why his blog wasn't about writing. Uh-huh. And it was a very funny post. And then I realized that I wanted to read that blog. I wanted to read, as as somebody who was at that point trying to, had just sold my first professional short story and was trying to write a novel that would sell, I wanted that blog. So I decided to write it. <laughs> yeah. And, and I wrote it. Uh, I kept it going for for ten years, two thousand and three through twenty thirteen, plus intermittent updates afterwards. I think the last one was probably about a year ago. But then I realized that like I'm still learning stuff about writing, and I don't think you ever stop. But all of the stuff I'm learning about writing now is no longer generally applicable. It's how I fix this one particular sentence, uh-huh. and I have no idea how to blog about that or if it would be <laughs> useful to anybody. Uh-huh. 
Also, I sort of ran out of time. Yeah, yeah. I so, know about that. <laughs> that's the other thing. <laughs> so I'll include links to all of these uh, places to find you in the show notes. And thank you so much for sharing your time with the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. God, thank you for giving me this opportunity. This has been so much fun. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 